Hello, it's May 2019, and we're less than two weeks away from the third season premiere of The Handmaid's Tale. Once new episodes begin to air in June, we'll be covering the show on an episode-by-episode basis. But to get warmed up, we're going to be talking about the past two seasons in the context of some of the show's core themes, and discussing how these themes are currently echoing throughout our society today. Get ready for some tough topics, as well as some moments of inspiration. My name is Gina. Welcome to Resisting Gilead. It's January 1993 in South Hadley, Massachusetts. We're at Mount Holyoke College, the oldest women's college in the United States. I'm in a classroom with about 40 women between the ages of 18 and 22. One of the women in the class is named Andrea a fellow sophomore and a passionate women's studies major. Andrea and I live in the same dorm and are acquaintances, but it's in this room we start forming a lifelong friendship. We're taking a class, Alternative Lifestyles for Women, and we're exploring three topics, lesbian sexuality, nuns in the Catholic Church, and single motherhood by choice. While Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, isn't being discussed in this class, Perhaps it should be, considering the variety of nightmarish alternative lifestyles Gilead's women are forced into, and the fact that none of the lifestyles we're discussing would be tolerated in this society. In Gilead, every woman in this room would be a handmaid, young, fertile woman assigned to conceive, birth, and then hand their babies over to their commander and mistress. Our identities would be stripped. Reading would be a punishable offense. Lesbians would be labeled gender traitors and put to death if they couldn't reproduce. Any religion, Catholic or otherwise, that we once followed would be destroyed. Single mothers would have their children taken from them and given to married couples. But these alternative lifestyles aren't the ones we discuss. Fast forward to March 2019. I live in Oakland, California, and Andrea lives in Boulder, Colorado. The Handmaid's Tale is now a television show that began airing in April 2017, just a few months after the Trump administration came into power. The alternative lifestyles women are forced to live in Gilead are starting to feel too close for comfort. Andrea? Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, and the best you're... thing is, I only have two participants. I don't know where that third person was. It's weird. <laughs> okay, so we're here today to talk about The Handmaid's Tale, specifically in context to religion and mm. what religion means and looks like in the state of Gilead and, you know, some of our own experiences um, with religion in our lives. And so let's kind of warm up and just talk about the show a little bit. Um, if, so there is a weird caste system for women in Gilead. You've got the handmaids, which are the reproductive army, I guess you'd call it. You have Marthas, which are kind of like housekeepers. They cook, they, you know, home servants that wait on, uh, commanders and their wives. Then there are the wives who are, I don't know, women of upper society that um, 
have the highest position in Gilead, perhaps. Um, they're in solid marriages, wealthy socioeconomic status, things like mm. that. Um, then we mm-hmm. have the ants, which are kind of like, um, and I think you said this before, and we'll talk about this person again, but they are kind of like Catholic nuns in a yes. way. Um, right. They teach and keep the handmaids in check and then I think well and then there are the unwomen yeah the unwomen who are deemed socially unacceptable yep there seems to be no reason to kill them outright so they send them to these places in the United States that seem to be polluted with toxic waste yes they make them gruel away and clean it every day um, until they die. It's like a really horrible prison camp uh, of which yeah. death is the only escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's one more. It's um, oh. it's the Econo Wives. What? Which, Who are they? Okay, so you know when she was escaping and she's in the apartment of that family? Yes. So it's it's families of a lower socioeconomic status um, oh. that seem to be kept intact, but you know they only get apartments, and you know who knows how they get promoted out of that or not. But yeah, Econo wise, okay. I think that's it. So we forgot to mention one important group of women in this caste system. And probably that is because no other women in Gilead realize this group of women exists. They're called the Jezebels. And I think the best way for you to understand who they are and what they do is to listen to this clip from the show. Who are all these people? Oh, officers, senior officials, and foreign visitors, of course, to stimulate diplomacy and business. I meant the women. Oh, all women who couldn't assimilate. Some were working girls before. That one there, she's a sociology professor, or she was. We've got lawyers, a CEO, a few journalists. I'm told you can have quite a good conversation with some of them if why you feel like is talking. <laughs> We've got quite a collection. They prefer it here. So out of this group of women, if we were in Gilead today, what cast assignment do you think you would have or be given? Probably the aunt position. Wait, wait, either an aunt or a Martha, I guess. Yeah. One of those. Yeah. Because yeah. Too old for baby making. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a stretch for you and me yeah. both at this point, uh-huh. I'm sure. Um, Talk about a geriatric pregnancy. Yeah. And yeah, because we're both single and, yep. you know, I would prefer to be a Martha if I had a choice. Yes. True. Because um, I think the ants are rather horrible. Yeah. Um, it's true. Yeah. Um. Tell me about 
your favorite scene or episode from the series so far? Well, that explosion at the newly renovated building really blew me away. Like, I just wasn't prepared for that. It just shook me to the core when they exploded and all those um, successful men in power were in that building. It just kind of, I don't know, it threw me for a loop that they did that. I was, I did not see that coming at all. So yeah. I, that stands out. Yeah, and I didn't either. And particularly because of Glenn earlier, and this is of Glenn number two, um, not Emily, she, um, she says to June at one point, like, don't ruin this for me. Like, I have it good. I used to like screw a guy behind a dumpster for, <gasps> right. for money to buy a Happy Meal and a six of Oxy. And, you know, these people are nice to me. I have food to eat. Um, I have a place to live. And, you know, it just kind of seemed like she was all for it in a really weird way. Mm. She was getting brainwashed, maybe. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like Fred said something once, like, when you try to make things better for everyone you make things worse for some people oh and I think for her um of Glenn number two the, sh things got better for her as a result of this at least initially wow. yes right um and then you know they were getting ready to stone Janine to death at the oh, end God. of the first season yeah and she's kind of like I'm, we're, we're not going to kill Janine. Like, what are you, like, this is messed up. And then, you know, we see her get beaten and taken away and later learn that they cut her tongue out so she can't talk anymore. Um, yeah. And then clearly that was the beginning of her becoming part of the underground resistance. And she basically decided to become a suicide bomber yep. and she's the one that ran kind of up the aisle in the red center with all those commanders and and clicked right. that bomb um which yeah I definitely did not see <laughs> that coming um, I to totally gasped yeah it was shocking oh, gosh yeah. one of the more shocking moments in that which is also confusing because we hear about, unfortunately, we hear about suicide bombers all the time. Mm -hmm. And really there's so much worse that's happening in Gilead that to think the suicide bombing is shocking. Is, <laughs> yeah. It's all twisted and backwards. <laughs> right. <laughs> they do such an amazing production of, of everything and editing. They really do. It's, I mean, it's phenomenal. The acting's phenomenal. This, like, as horrifying as that bomb exploding was, I thought that Handmaid's funeral procession was one of the more moving things I've ever seen. Just like the way it was shot, the costumes yes. specifically for that. It's yep. just, mm -hmm. um, it was. They just, thought of everything. Yeah, it was so visual and. 
yeah, I think the the way they were mourning was really interesting. And, you know, I think um, you've gotten to the part then where they all meet up in the grocery store again. Yes. Um, and they start using their real first yes. names. Yeah, because someone's like, I didn't even know, you know, of so-and-so's real name. Yep. And someone's like, well, she was your grocery partner. And mm. that's when, and this was June. Um, you know, she's like, did anyone know her name? And they're like, no, she was your partner. And that's when June is like in the grocery store saying, my name is June. Mm -hmm. And everyone else chimed in. So to me, this handmade name reveal in the grocery store really is one of the most powerful scenes in the entire series. Imagine being assigned a new name that is associated with the commander that um, is allowed to ceremonially rape you once a month. June becomes of Fred. Janine became of Warren. Emily was known as of Glenn. Um, it's just completely demeaning and is a way to strip identity and sense of self and self sense of self-worth from a person. And so that's why I'm going to play the scene in the grocery store because it just really is one of the most both heart-wrenching and also inspiring scenes. Like this is a huge planting of a seed of things I think we'll see to come in season three. Part of our conversation where we try to make sense of the religious structure of Gilead and talk about some of our own experiences with religion growing up. One of the things that drives me crazy and makes me roll my eyes is when people use religious text as a way to either shame others for just living their lives or use it to excuse their own bad or hateful behavior. Politicians are great at this and so are those in charge of Gilead. So initially I thought Gilead was a theocracy. Um, you know, this used to be something that was more typical of early civilizations. And I guess examples that we would see today include Saudi Arabia, Iran, and also the Vatican. We'll get back to that in a minute. But after I did a bit of reading, it turns out that Gilead is actually something called a theonomy. So a theonomy is a hypothetical Christian form of government in which society is ruled by divine law. 
and theonomists hold that divine law, including the judicial laws of the Old Testament, that they should be observed by modern societies today. And so this is where kind of Gilead comes into play and explains a lot. It explains why we don't really see any true religious leadership in Gilead. There doesn't seem to be any type of pope, and there actually doesn't even seem to be any type of president when it comes down to it. Um, there also seems to be nothing that resembles a church. and. You know, I think we talk about this a little bit later, but like no one's going to church in spite of this being a very kind of heavy handed society driven by God. Um, what it is being led by, it's, you know, being led by a group of men using biblical text as a guide for governing, um, where a theocracy would be led by a religious leader. So I mentioned the Vatican is a theocracy, that theocracy is led by Pope Francis. What do you kind of make of religion in Gilead? Well, it's a form of control and they're gaslighting everyone. And it's it just reminds me so much of a cross between Mormonism and Catholicism because they're obsessed with controlling women's reproductive situations um and they just keep changing they keep twisting the truth a lot um you know like oh she she wasn't running away she was kidnapped and um i don't know the gaslighting is out of control unbelievable and that happens a lot in catholicism and mormonism so those two those are the two religions that, that stick out to me in this Gilead situation. Controlling women. And, and what they wear, clothing. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that does seem to be along the lines of some stricter Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you even know, Mennonites. Yeah, Mennonites as well, where, you know, one guy has Oof. multiple wives and they all wear those pastel <laughs> prairie dresses. Yep. Um, they don't cut their hair, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. They're and weird. I don't think they do in Gilead either. Although, Lorna's oh. oh. hair continued to be short, but maybe right. that's because she ended up at Jezebel's. Yes. Um, I don't know, but even in the Red Center, um, they kept hers oh. very short. Huh, strange. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. But it does seem with June's hair that you know, she definitely had it bobbed in her kind of past life before everything happened. And yeah. at one point, it's very long before she escapes that first time and hacks it off again. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did um, you make of that backstory about um, Serena Joy? Remember, she went to the university and made that speech? Yeah, you know, that was crazy. Okay. So she had a huge role in the creation of Gilead because right. she wrote that book on domestic feminism. Yep. That, that kind of seemed like a manifesto to lay this out. Women shouldn't work. They should stay home to support their families and right. raise their children and they should be mothers. Um, and it seemed like 
when she was at the school giving that lecture, at the heart of it was the fact that the reproduction rates had fallen so much. Um, and that could oh. be considered a crisis, depending. I think, mm-hmm. you know, particularly, I think with the level of birth defects that seem to be happening in the society before uh, the Gilead folks took over. Right. Do you think Serena Joy knows that this Gilead experiment is not going well and she doesn't want to face the reality of her failure in it? Yes. Or do you think she, yeah, okay. I think she knows it's not going well. Okay. I think, and she's become very critical of her husband as well. Mm. Well, you know, she, they had that prayer vaganza that ended up oh, being yeah. <laughs> the mass child bride oh, wedding oh, ceremony. Gross, yes. Oh, which, yeah. okay, yeah. in terms of religion in this place, that's like the only, no, it's one of two ceremonies, maybe three, that we see. And I, I don't even feel like they're in a church. It felt like it, like a stadium, like a college Right, high school yes. auditorium, or especially the way they were sitting where June was sitting. Yeah, it felt like a stadium seat. Yeah, just like you're on the bleachers at a basketball yes. game. Um, you're so right. Ew. Yeah. Mega mega church, like you know me yeah. and my hatred of mega churches. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> but you know she's like, oh, this pervaganza thing Fred is planning is a stretch. You know she's <laughs> she's kind of like throwing out some barbs and yes. Um, at one point she says to June, I think it was after they go visit baby Angela that first time last season. Uh huh. Yep. And June is saying, I don't think the handmaid is doing well. And Serena Joy says something like, it's so terrible what we do. And then she kind of backpedals a little and she's like, it's terrible what we have to do together. Like trying to make an exception, but I think she knows it's horribly wrong. I mean, she seems to be getting more, uh, humane is that the word I want yeah um, yeah because bit. she was really a sociopath in the first <laughs> yeah no she was well but <sighs> think about it like okay one ceremony mass child bride wedding mm-hmm. to guardians second ceremony or the first one we see is you kind of see June and there's kind of a weird bounce happening. You're like, what is this? And mm-hmm. then it kind of pans back and June's lying at the end of the bed. Commander Waterford is having sex with her. Ugh, and yeah. Serena Joy is kind of like June's head is in her lap almost. Right. And she's looking away. Like she's there, but she cannot bear to look. Um, yeah. You know, so that's another really sick ceremony. Must treat these girls respectfully in a godly fashion, despite the moral stain from their lives before. Price ease up. We can't afford all that window dressing. The human race is at risk. What is important is efficiency. 
So what do you propose? It's not rocket science. All remaining fertile women should be collected and impregnated by those of superior status, of course. Talking about concubines. I don't care what you want to call it. The wives would never accept it. Well, that's a non-issue. No, we won't succeed without their support. You know that. Maybe the wife should be there for the act. Could be less of a violation. There is scriptural precedent. Act may not be the best name. From a branding perspective. The ceremony? Sounds good, nice and godly. The wives would eat that shit up. one scene before the change it's like she and Fred had rushed home from work during a lunch break and they're racing upstairs to have sex to try to conceive a baby yes Um, I remember that well the whole time you know they're running up there they're also saying like strange scripture like bless this union you know it's a whole verse it seems from a religious text. Um, Mm. And, you know, they seem to be very passionate and in love. They were asking for a baby as part of that. But she'd also said something like, um, they shall be naked and they shall not be ashamed. Um, So part of me wonders how much she really buys into the religious aspect of it. (laughs) versus the societal Mm -hmm. aspect in terms of just really wanting to be a mother and making sure that women can have healthy babies. Um, I don't know. It's very strange. It's a good time. It's a good day for us. I left as early as I could. It's good because I have a conference call at four. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not your boy toy. I need to be romance. Let us pray. Maybe some flowers. You could write me a poem. It doesn't have to rhyme. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he took out one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh and stepped there out. Like that's crap. And which the Lord God had taken from me and made him one. I brought her unto the man. My bones, the flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was there for a man. They were naked, the men and the wife. Then they were not ashamed. My God bless this union. I make it fruitful. You know, um, when I was putting some notes together as I was trying to like splice our first interview together, (laughs) um, I just kind of thought about the way that we really got to know each other was when we took that alternative lifestyles for women class. Oh, yes, that's right. That was a phenomenal, memorable class. Yeah. Well, and part of me was thinking we were talking about, you know, kind of religious path, Catholic nuns, Mm -hmm. lesbianism in terms of sexuality, chosen single motherhood. And I'm like, we should have been discussing The Handmaid's Tale and all the alternative lifestyles we were that these women are forced into. Right. Yes. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Yeah, that was an eye-opening class. Yeah. Were you there for when 
they were talking about turkey basters? You know, I was. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) I'm like, did I make that up? What's the third lifestyle? And then you're like, something about turkey basters? And I'm like, oh, okay. I remember now. Oh. Um, The good old days. Yeah, Um, I know. That was such a great class. Yeah. Um, What was I going to... You said some interesting things about last time we talked about going to Catholic school and just kind of your, some revelations about Catholicism that you had and some things that really mm. bothered you as oh, well. Right. Well, just speaking of alternative lifestyles for women, my high school, I think a lot of the nuns that taught me were in relationships with other nuns and they were lesbian relationships. Oh, what makes you say that? Well, there, of course, you know, high school girls had rumor, the rumor mill going, but just observing them, you know, like they paired off a lot. And even the principal of the school was supposedly dating the history teacher and they all lived in the, um, what's that called? Not the nunnery, but like there was this, mansion next to the school and they were all living there together all the teachers hmm. the the nun teachers so i don't know maybe we had wild imaginations back then but it did seem possible i mean that's one way to get around the rules right being yeah. having a, a you know relations with each other yeah well I mean if priests can abuse little boys for years and years and years yeah nuns entering into consensual lesbian relationships isn't really that bad and yeah exactly I agree um but I've also been very I've always been skeptical of religion and weary of the priests that I've had to interact with because I went to Catholic you know, like CCDs, the Sunday school that we had to go to. And I, I've been going to Catholic stuff, kindergarten through 12th grade. And I would observe these really obnoxious priests who thought they were hot shit and treated everyone like dirt. And I thought, huh, that doesn't jive with what I've been learning, that we're supposed to treat each other equally. And I just really hated this one particular priest because he would carry his mug around that said the big cheese. And I was in third grade and I knew that he was not a pious man because he was really obnoxious and he just acted like he owned all of us and owned the whole rectory. And, you know, he was just kind of bossy and rude and he was definitely a narcissist. And looking back on it, a lot of these priests that I met were total narcissists. Are there any examples that you remember? <sighs> oh, gosh. Well, I mean, they really did have to stand up in front of a crowd and get people to pay attention to them. And they loved garnering that attention. And I couldn't be a, a, an altar girl. Mm. 
and they finally changed those rules and now girls can be altar girls, but they just, they look down upon women in my town, hmm. my particular St. Luke's. <laughs> um, they were just kind of obnoxious and I don't know. They, they had really nice cars. They were well taken care of. Apparently they even got stipends. They got money, but nuns are not allowed to have financial anything. Oh. So, and I could be wrong, but it just seemed like they were being paid well. They dressed well. I just, I just thought something was off. Well, you know, nice shoes, nice top, you know, nice belts. And maybe they, they were gay. Maybe they really cared about their looks. I don't know. Oh, that's so weird. Like all I remember is my priest father, Riley, like the only thing I ever saw him in outside his uh, church robes was like black pants, black shirt. Mm -hmm. And the collar. Yeah. With the collar. And then sometimes a sweater like over it, you know, right. That was it. Huh. Um, yeah. Well, I, I went to an all girls high school and my boyfriend at the time went to an all boys high school. And so I've observed a lot of those priests too, because we would have like dances at the all boys high school because it was a bigger school and they would have literally a huge truck of beer. Like it would say Budweiser on this huge truck deliver like tons and tons of beer and um what are the big things called kegs kegs yeah kegs of beer would be delivered to the priests at this school what yeah for the decibels (laughs) i don't know i just i've always been creeped out by the priests i've known Mm. They yeah. just, they just got, well, they're well taken care of yeah. compared to the women yeah. so, the, and the nuns that I knew, yeah. but the nuns that I knew were very much into social justice, which is the, like the best part about Catholicism is the social justice part. And J- Jesuits are very much into social justice. That's true. They're the more so like kind of that. highly educated uh, ones amongst yes. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Catholic priests and I, I guess nuns too. And there are some Jesuit colleges specifically like Santa Clara's one. Holy uh, Cross. Yep. Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the ones that I feel like they try and give people the best rounded education as opposed to a strictly religious education. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And I do think for the first time in my lifetime, we've got a Pope that is very pro social justice, you know, yes. more so than any other in the past post Pope Francis. Yep. It's very refreshing to see that. Yeah. It does. And it like, makes me hopeful. Yeah. Cause I consider myself a recovering Catholic. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't, me too. I don't go to church regularly, like maybe midnight mass if I'm home in Bernie where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's for Christmas Eve. Um, But yeah, it actually does give me a little bit of hope like, oh, okay, we're going to embrace all people. 
yeah, that sounds like the Bible. <laughs> that sounds like Christian Christianity to me. Very Christian. Did, did you see that hilarious video of the Pope? <laughs> People were trying to kiss his ring and he kept pulling his hand back really no. fast. Oh, Why? God, I'll send it to you. It's so freaking funny. Okay. He's like, don't kiss my ring. Don't kiss my ring. <laughs> He's just yanking his hand away from them because they're like ready to kiss the ring, literally. Hmm. And he's just pulling it back. And it's, oh God, he has good reflexes. <laughs> so he is, he's the Pope with hope. <laughs> pope with hope. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Um, uh, but did you ever like doing that? Um, oh God, what is it called? Um, when you tell the priest all your sins, bullshit. Confession? <laughs> Yeah. No. In fact, I, <laughs> I think hated I went it. twice. Me too. Ever. Yes, me too. I just so thought awkward. it was baloney. Yeah, it's so awkward. It's like, Stupid. really? I can, I can tell my sins directly to God and he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could say a few extra Hail Marys on my own if I really feel that bad about something. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's another very strange power structure um, yes. within the Catholic Church. Because you know, even if you've got the divider between you, they still know who it is, especially if you go regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in this day and, and I, age, they could probably put cameras in the confessionals for all you know. <laughs> right. And I've always thought nuns should be allowed to do mass. Yeah. No, they should. They should. So. Um, they Patriarchy should. is still alive and well over there. Yeah. Well, I think, land. I think... They should all be allowed to marry. Frankly. Oh, me too. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, definitely. Um, okay, so this reminds me of something I wanted to tell you about, especially now that you've seen the um, child bride marriage ceremony. Ugh, gross, yeah. First communion in the Catholic <gasps> Church. Oh, God, it does remind me of that now that you say that. Yeah, <gasps> and, and that is like, I feel Ew. like that is the crack they get a lot of kids with especially the girls, because it's like on your first communion day, you get to dress up like a bride. Like (laughs) it's the white dress. You get a veil. It's really, um, I was just thinking about that. I'm like, Ooh, like that kind of makes me double think everything. It is like (gasps) a weird little child wedding ceremony. Yes. I never realized that. Yeah. But guess what? I wore a pink to my communion. I wore a pink belt and it was leather, leather. So I kind of was rebellious even back then in second grade. Oh, that's good. No one said anything to you about that? I did. Well, I think I got a few stares. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, because I did not look like a bride at all that day. My mom dressed me, you know, my mom, she dressed me like an eight-year-old. It was very, you know, girly. Like, it looked like I was going out to recess. Didn't look like I was getting married. She didn't like that. Yeah. Did you look like a bride? Oh yeah. Like I can see my first communion picture because, uh, my parents have it (gasps) next to my dad's first communion picture because- our faces look alike. So, um, and I like, it was like a long white dress. It had like a ruffle on the bottom. It had, it was like that fabric. It's cotton, but had like little raised polka dots. 
everywhere that were tiny. Oh, okay, yes. Puffy short sleeves, and I had a veil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not have a veil. Yeah, I had a veil. Wow. I know. Ugh, gross. Yeah. yeah. When I see, I'm going to re-watch that episode and compare them to. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Ugh. Yucky. So after I watched the first season of The Handmaid's Tale, anytime anything disturbing was in the news in which women's rights or family rights were in jeopardy, or there were pushes to make things more Christian, I think to myself, wow, we're like five steps away from becoming Gilead. So of course, I want to know what others think as well. Um, on a scale of one to 10, with one being the furthest and 10 being the closest, how close do you think we are in the United States from becoming Gilead? Well, it's getting closer and closer to number nine, sadly. Okay. Because yeah, I, what, I just what feel like... say this? Because I feel like when we talked two weeks ago, you're <laughs> it like, was an eight. it's an eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Georgia is slowly taking abortion rights away from women. Not slowly, quickly taking abortion rights away from women in the state of Georgia. I think Tennessee and Kentucky and the Carolinas are next. I mean, it's just really, really creepy that these Republicans in power do not want women taking care of their own bodies and making their own decisions about their bodies. And we have a regime right now, an administration under DJT that is all about being obsessed with abortion. And it's just getting really creepy around here. <laughs> and I'm a, a little bit worried. Yeah, no, it's definitely, um, I don't know. It's, it's so odd when I hear about this state by state um, kind know. of movements happening. Yes, right. Uh, you know, I just kind of think, I don't know. It is well, there, disturbing. There's so many uh, fundamental uh, Christians who are also Republicans in power, and they're getting more powerful, these fundamental Christians like Pence and his cronies. And they're behind this, you know, wave of taking women's rights away. So yeah. it's just horrifying. So I wish I could say that Andrea was being overdramatic when she says we're at a nine out of 10 on our way to becoming Gilead. But the truth is between January and March of 2019, 250 abortion restrictions have been introduced in this country, all designed to limit access to abortion care and lay the foundation to overturn Roe versus Wade. The latest, Governors in Kentucky, Ohio, and Georgia have signed bans on abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected. And then there's Alabama. Oh, Alabama's governor signed a measure making abortion a felony in nearly all cases, including cases where the pregnancy stemmed from either incest or rape. Mississippi and Missouri are pushing for bans as well. 
So if you're a woman, this prognosis looks pretty grim because what these states are saying is that women should have fewer rights over what they choose to do with their bodies when they are alive than when they are dead because organ donation after death is a personal choice. However, people are making their voices heard. Protests against these bans have been taking place across the nation in recent weeks, and states like Kansas and Vermont are actually taking measures to protect abortion rights for the women in those states. It is rough watching. Yeah, well, thank you for helping me make sense out of it all. No, I mean, thank you for like coming on and sharing your perspectives and... Yeah, it's important. I know. Think it's, more than anything, like I know that this triggers a lot of women and they Ugh. don't want to watch it or they watch one episode and they can't watch anymore. And I totally get yep. it. But at the same time, as you know, we are a certain number of steps away from this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think people just need to be aware of what the worst case yep. scenario really is. So we can avoid it. I agree. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's part of my goal for like discussing this show is more to educate people just to have them watch the show and Mm kind of hear what other people think about it. Yep. I was nervous to watch season two, but I'm glad I did, you know, so far. Yeah. Yeah. So. We'll see what happens in season three. Oh my God. She's always. I know. We'll have at least one more episode air before the season three premiere of The Handmaid's Tale, but I would love to get listener feedback about a couple of things as we head into this season. The first is feedback on the most recent season three trailer, because we'd love to break that down at some point. And then the second would be a more specialized show. I personally would love to get listener theories and thoughts about Aunt Lydia's backstory. Right now, she is one of the show's biggest mysteries as we know very little about her life before Gilead. So my question to you is, who is Aunt Lydia? Please send all feedback to resistinggilead at gmail.com. And until next time, keep resisting and don't let the bastards grind you down. Thank you.